And with this, we conclude our time together. I will cry all my way back to Bakersfield. It'll be great. My parents are there with my other two kids right now, who I didn't bring because they're psychos. And so I'll be picking them up. So I'll see you guys all there. It's going to be great. We'll have a little party reunion. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Mark, chapter 2, to finish our time together. Mark, chapter 2. The first night we talked about what does it mean to love God completely? What parts of our life have we proverbially left off the altar when it comes to sacrificing ourselves, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice to God? There are things that almost all of us have left off off the altar saying, God, I'm going to give you 98%. But what we learn in the scriptures is that 90% submission to God is 10% treason against him. Because his, our life is his. Our life belongs to him. And so if we have those cryptic, hidden, secret things that we keep to ourselves and don't give over to him, those are areas of disobedience and idolatry in our life. Then we talked about what does it mean to love yourself correctly? And contrary to popular opinion, to love yourself correctly is not to indulge yourself or to fixate on yourself. It is instead to find your proper place in the grand, the grand narrative of creation. And that is to understand why you were made and what purpose you were made for. And that purpose is identified. It's received, not achieved. And God alone, the creator, is able to give that to us. Then last night we talked about what does it mean then to respond authentically to the gospel? What does it mean to hear who this God is and and what this God thinks and how this God acts and, and how he's demonstrated his love for us? What does it mean to tell him the whole truth then? If we understand his character, we understand his love and his sacrifice for us, why are we holding things back when it comes to the truth of our hearts? And it was fun to even hear stories and and to, to watch you guys taking those challenges time and time and time again to lean into these conversations that are, that are eternal and matter. There's nothing more important than the conversations that you can have regarding your soul and your eternity. And we've just kind of, we dived in head first on what that looks like. So today we wrap up with what does it mean to love each other compassionately? Okay, that word compassionately comes from the Latin and it means with passeo, which means passion or with suffering. That's where we get the word passion from. So we talk about the passion of the Christ. Uh, Don't think like the fervent desire of Jesus was to walk to the cross, right? When they put the big 150-pound cross beam on his shoulders and said, as a flogged man, go walk up to Calvary. We're going to pin you to the tree. He wasn't passionate about it. He wasn't going, yes, this is what I had in mind. This is fantastic. I'm enjoying this. I'm passionate about this crucifixion. No, the passion of the Christ means the suffering of our Savior, and, and in scripture, we find that we are called to love one another with suffering. What does that even mean? How are we supposed to love each other compassionately? And again, we kind of, we kind of push back and we, and we topple the idols and the ideas of our culture that say, as soon as a relationship or a friendship gets difficult, you move on to the next one. You label it as something difficult or something toxic and you just move on to the next one. But that's not really the picture we get in scripture of what it means to love each other compassionately. I worked at the Olive Garden. Y'all ever been there? Mm-hmm. Endless soup, salad, and breadsticks. What's up? No. I worked there when I was in college. I went to Concordia University, the other Eagles. Uh, Eagles? Eagle pride. Okay. Also, the Biola's Eagles. For whatever reason, all Christian schools have a, um, some kind of bird of prey theme. We're the Eagles. Uh, the Eagles are the best. Right? All right. Okay, anyway. Um, so, I worked at the Olive Garden, and I worked at the Olive Garden in Irvine, California. So, a lot of, like, rich people came in and out all the time, 
And because it's like uh, vaguely resembles a Tuscan Italian restaurant, they forget that this is owned by Darden Restaurants, who also own like Red Lobster and like to, to uh, Tiki Grill, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, this is an authentic Italian. It's not an authentic Italian experience. Like our, on my name tag, it said Hospitaliano. We're like, come on, no one here speaks Italian. We don't know what's going on. And like our, our birthday song was like, Bona Festa, what a joyous day. Life's good fortune is sure to come your way. Come on, sit back and just relax. I'll fill your plate the Italian way. We're so glad you came to celebrate with us today. And it's like, bro, the song is happy birthday. This is America. You know what I mean? Like some old rich white dude owns this restaurant. He's not Italian in the least, but you get there, but then people walk in and they see the food and they observe the atmosphere. And then they all of a sudden turn into like high level Anton Ego like food critics. They're like, mm, the chicken parmesan is stale. And you're like, it came from a bag. I watched them put it in the thing. Like, it's, come on, man. This isn't homemade. Every morning, the breadsticks come on a truck, and they are just piled, and they are 75 calories a piece, right? Like, the pasta form, I, if you guys are, any of you guys, like, own Olive Garden, or you're, like, really passionate about, okay, good. Like, we would have, like, nurses come in for, like, their break, their lunch break. They'd be like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna do something light. I'm just gonna do the soup salad and breadsticks. So I'll do the pasta fagioli, which is like a vegetable-based bowl of soup, but it's 750 calories a bowl. There's nothing light about it, right? It's like, anyway, this was Olive Garden. But as people walk into the restaurant, every time you turn on the TV, you, you see like someone pouring like this, 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 like, uh, this splashing Caesar dressing or the Italian dressing on the, on the salad and then tossing it around with like the Parmesan and the croutons. And then you watch the breadsticks and someone's slowly slathering butter on it like this. And you're like, that's not what happens, right? Like Frankie in the back is like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, on Thursday, he just like slather and everyone's like, like spraying butter with a little hose of like butter. That's like the real experience. But anyway, every time you turn on the TV, Olive Garden beckons you. Come here. You've got a lot of things, but only we can provide the true Hospitaliano experience. Yeah, you might want to go. You might want to think you want to go to like Tahoe Joe's, right? Or Frugati's. Okay. That's some real Italian food right there. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but Olive Garden says, look, we're going to give you an experience. We're going to give you these soup, salad, and breadsticks. We've got a new thing where you buy a meal and you can take one home with you. So like, you can get diabetes ASAP. You know, it's like this is, this is what we're going to do. And they, and they lure you in. And so as you watch TV or as you even drive down the street and you see the signs for Olive Garden, come here, eat with us, dine with us. When you're here, your family, they're playing at like the, the, the deepest human emotion, which is to feel welcome. And the restaurants, it's inciting that to bring you in. When you're here, your family, no, I'm not. When I get there, I can't be like, hey, I like walk in the kitchen and like help myself. You charge me to eat. This isn't what family does. This is not part of family at all. But you are to them, their clientele. You're a consumer. And the problem with that is that in almost every area of our lives, as young adults in America, we have been taught to be consumers. Unadulterated, completely against what we were created to be in Christ, we have become consumers. And it doesn't stop at the Olive Garden, right? 
People walk into the Olive Garden then, they're like, it's a little too hot in here, it's a little too cold. And I, I, this is a true story. I had a lady one time order Bellini Raspberry Peach Iced Tea, okay? It's what it's called, Bellini Raspberry Peach Iced Tea. But on the menu, it comes as either Bellini Peach Iced Tea or Bellini Raspberry Iced Tea. Friends, it's all one vat of iced tea in the back. There's not two different kinds of iced tea. It's flavored, it's f- flavored peach and raspberry in the same thing. So no matter what they order, you put the same concoction in it, and all you do is garnish it differently. If they order peach, you put a peach in it. If they order raspberry, you put a raspberry in it. This lady ordered Bellini peach iced tea. So I, forgetting exactly what she ordered, but I knew she ordered this, put a raspberry in it instead. I took it to her table. I set it down. She took a drink, and I kid you not, she went, sips a little bit. She goes, I ordered peach iced tea. I said, yeah, the Bellini peach iced tea. She goes, this is raspberry. And I went, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. So I went in the back, I took the raspberry out, I put a peach in, and I brought it back to her, and she went, she literally <laughs> smelled it, went, mm-hmm, and then took a drink, she's like, yeah, that's better. And I'm like, okay, okay, lady. Like, that's the same thing, right? But, but we're consumers, so we walk in, and we've got like our almighty, I don't know if do I have money in my pocket? I've got a SeaWorld pass. I live in San Diego. That's we just, I got an annual pass to SeaWorld. We just go to SeaWorld all the time. I got five kids. I let them in the park and I let them go free. I put little wristbands on them, little RFID things, and then I just hang out, read a book, whatever. Someone will pick them up. And if, I, if you stand by the exit, no one can leave with them because the, the walls are too high because they're keeping Shamu in and stuff. So, but right, like you walk into, this is probably not enough money for the Olive Garden, $15. <laughs> Youth pastor budget. Okay, so you walk into Olive Garden with like 50 bucks in your hand and you're the king. The server serves you after spitting your food and treats you really nicely and gets you a big pile of those Andes mints on your way out the door and boxes up your bread for you, maybe a few more, just to make sure he gets a bigger tip. And, and you're like the king. You get to talk about how you want the temperature differently and how your food is a little bit too dry and it's, it's cold and it's a... You're just the king of your own universe, and here's the issue. In almost every area of our life, we've been taught that this is the way that we do things. Like, if, as a pastor, I would love to show you my comment cards. I worked at a church for the past 10 years. We have 12,000 people come to our church every weekend, okay? 12,000, that's a lot of people. And I would preach on the weekend, and then you'd get a stack of comment cards that was like this big. And every last one you had to read and respond to if it had a question on it. And I can't even start to tell you some of the responses from that. One of them was, they're like, why does this guy wear a black wedding band? Like, my ring was black, and this guy had an issue with it. He didn't appreciate that. Another lady, she literally, this is all she said. She said, you use too many big words. And I said, well, that's presumptuous. Um, (laughs) But they just, and sometimes it's just rude. They're like, this one girl said, it sounds like you're always hoarse. How do you want to change that? It's my voice. She's like, I can't listen to this guy anymore. He always sounds like he's hoarse. And you're like, friend, somewhere along the line, you forgot what the church was built for. Because it wasn't built to satisfy your every waking whim. And because you tithe or because you give to church does not make you a shareholder in that church. It's Jesus' church. But this is translated to almost every area of our lives. And one of the ways that it's most pervasive, especially for us as young adults, is we've done this with our relationships too. We have taken some of the most profound covenants that we can make as people, 
marriage being one of them. For a lot of you guys who understand like your parental situations or maybe your um, aunt, uncle, grandpa, grandma. And we have treated people the way, same way we would treat Olive Garden. We are consumers of them. And once you do something that doesn't befit me, or if you're uh, a local grocery store and you stop carrying the things that I want, I go to the next one. And I let you know on my way out the door why you don't satisfy me anymore, so I'm moving on to something else. And we've started to treat people, we've objectified them and said, your job is to make me happy. And once you stop doing that, I'm out. The problem is this is completely counterintuitive to any spiritual growth or maturity that you could ever experience. Spiritual growth and maturity is always found inside covenant when hardship hits. Almost everyone in your life that you deeply respect and profoundly admire has gone through something horrible in their life and it has made them on the other side someone different. And the only reason they went through it is because they stuck with it when all hell could have broken loose. When you hear a couple has been married for 50 years, we're always like, wow, why? Because in this day and age, we're saying, you could have at any point opted out and you stayed there and we're impressed by covenant. We're impressed by, by the idea of staying with things, of remaining. So I wanna challenge you as we finish our time here, when, you, when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to the way that even you view your local church, when it talks about in the scriptures about loving one another, are the way that we love, is the way that we love people in our lives the self-same or equivalent to the way that God would have us love people in our lives? Here's what it says, Mark chapter two. Did I say five earlier? I meant two. Mark chapter two. Here's what it says. Uh, a few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. So a house in this day and age is, if you had like three grown men and they kind of held hands across the span, that was about as big as a house got. You might have an upper room if you're, part of the, if you're part of the super wealthy class, but like you can go to the house in um, Capernaum where Jesus is, Jesus probably stayed, it's Peter's parents' house most likely, and it's not very big. So you can go stand there today, they, they've built a church over it, so it's like down underneath it, but it's pretty sweet. But it's, I mean, you could, you, it, it, it's like a modern day big tent is all it would be. So Jesus goes in and he's teaching here, People are crowding in and they're crowding outside. Anyone, anyone with an earshot, they just want to hear what he's saying because he's teaching things that are changing and transforming people. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bring to him a paralyzed man carried by four, four of them. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So you've got Jesus, he's in this room, and these guys go, we gotta get this guy to Jesus. We have to get our friend to Jesus. We've heard the stories of who he is, we've heard what he has done, and now, if we're gonna truly love this guy, we've gotta get him in front of him. But they can't get, they can't get through, and everyone's going, no, you don't, right? It's like at a, you know, at a concert, everyone's trying to elbow their way to the front, you're like, no, you stay back. And so they go, get on the roof, and they start cutting a hole in it. And I, I, when I say roof, I don't think like roof up there, the roof is like half a foot above the tallest person. So when they're cutting a hole in the roof, you've got like something that's, they're hitting through this, these, palm, these dead palm branches and it's shaking things. And a lot of times there's rats living up in that thing. And so everyone's kind of like, this is disgusting and weird and gross. And Jesus is sitting there like, this is fantastic. And they make a hole and they lower their friend and they put him in front of Jesus. And Jesus begins by doing what? 
Before addressing his physical need, what does he address? A spiritual need. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then, now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. What does blaspheming mean? Claiming to be God when you're not. So they're saying, this guy claims to be God, but he's not. When did he claim to be God? Did Jesus anywhere in this passage go, I am God? No, but what did he do? He claimed to have the power to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? What's easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, speaking of himself. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He then got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I got a simple question for you. When you choose to walk away from Jesus, are you and do you have the type of friends who will, even against your will, put you on a mat and drag you back to his feet? So ultimately, there's no love like that. If you've got a friend in your life and they don't know Jesus, and you consistently and continually refuse to talk to them about it, and you, if you've got a friend, if you claim to love someone in your life that is far from God, who doesn't know Jesus, who isn't saved, and you don't bring it up to them, and you don't have these conversations, and you don't invite them into your community and into your fellowship to know God more, you don't love them. How could you? Could you imagine a world in which our lack of wanting to offend someone in some ways ends them up in an eternity in hell separated from God? And then when they ask you, wait a minute, didn't you, weren't you a church person? Why didn't you tell me? And you were like, well, sorry, I loved you, so I didn't want to be uncomfortable. What would their response be? You loved me? Look at me. How could you love me? Look where I am. Look what I'm doing. Look at the separation. And so I got a simple question for you when it comes to friendships and the way that we're called to love one another. Are you the kind of friend that void of consumerism is willing to get your hands dirty in the life of your friends if it means pushing them back to Jesus? Or, because you are a consumer, as soon as one of your relationships is complicated, as soon as one of your friendships, they start going a little bit south, maybe you're part of the religious elite in here. And as soon as your friend starts using a swear word, right, they're saying things like butts and crap. You go, mm, no, I'm sorry, we're gonna, and you kind of move on, you're like, I'll pray for you, but I'm gonna be out. Like, are you the kind of friend who when someone else, as a religious person, when they start going a different way, do you go, well, God help them. I hope someone takes care of them. I hope someone brings them back. When the Spirit's going, you, you bring them to Jesus. You advocate for them. You stand in the gap. But you and I both know that takes work. It takes effort. And we are by nature opposed to effort in our own lives. And I got another question for you. I want you to think about this. Think about the five people closest to you in your life, okay? Try to, try to list them in your head. Who are your five best friends? There's a study done a few years ago that says the question really isn't, 
if you were the average of all of your best friends, of, your, of the five people closest to you, would you like it? The question really is now, do you understand that you are continuously becoming the average of the five people closest to you? When I say the average of them, I don't mean average height or average skin color. I mean what you're becoming is you're becoming their average uh, spirituality. You're becoming their average uh, passion. You're becoming their average kindness. You're becoming their average gossip. You're becoming their average sinfulness. You're becoming their average vice. You're becoming their average addiction. You are, because of who is around you, consistently and constantly becoming the average of the people closest to you. Would you be comfortable with that? Think about them. Think about the five people closest to you. And, you, and if you were the average of their spirituality, would you go, Wow, that would be a big step up. This is a good group for me. Or would you go, if I was the average of these people, I don't know where I would be. I wouldn't know which way was up. The scriptures make it clear. Do not be deceived, the writer says. Bad company corrupts good character. So I leave with this simple question to you. Jesus his marching orders, his understanding of discipleship on planet Earth was this. They will know you are my disciples by the way that you win championships, bully people, have more money, are more successful. They will know you are my disciples by the way that you ah, Who said it? They will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. John 13, 35. Who, if you today fell into some kind of addiction, are you confident in covenantal relationships around you that four people would grab your proverbial mat and go, hey, no, you shut your mouth. You shut your mouth. You're going back to Jesus. I know you don't want to, but you're going back to Jesus. Why? Because he alone can save. He alone can heal. He alone gives life. And let me ask you another question. Are you the kind of friend that if your friend did that, you would intervene? You would advocate? Would you grab a corner of a mat and go, sorry, we're going? Or would you go, not my monkey, not my circus. Not my responsibility. I'll pray for them from a distance. If we want to truly experience the kind of community that powerfully and radically changes Bakersfield and your future families and your future lives and your future circles of influence and your future churches, we must become covenantal people and stop being consumeristic people. The most profound, mature movement that a Christian can make is to get out of the realm of consumerism and into the realm, realm of covenant. Covenant with your church, covenant with your school, covenant with your friends, covenant with your neighbors, covenant with your parents, covenant with your future wife, covenant with your future husband, whatever it might be. God's people are covenant people. These are the relationships where you're gonna go through the hardest thing in your life. In the, in the balcony, you're gonna see a lot of my friends that I brought from home. Uh, these are people that I... When Paige passed away on July 31st, I found out at 8.30 in the morning, and my house was full by 9.15. Because when everything went wrong, they leaned in, because we had a covenantal friendship with one another. And that covenantal friendship is not built out of going, every time it's difficult, I'm gonna back away. It was leaning into it, and through that suffering, and through that trial, and through that hardship, 
that came through years and years. The reason that it was so deep at the moment where I needed it the most was because for years, even sometimes when I didn't feel like it, we would hang out and we would do things and we would wrestle through arguments and we would stay with each other. And when one of them really ticked me off, you got over it. You talked through it. You matured out of it. This is the promise of Romans, chapter five, verse three through five. We rejoice in suffering, for suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Consumers never have hope or character or perseverance because they refuse to suffer well alongside their covenantal body of believers. So I wanna challenge you, just as you're leaving, I want you to take an inventory of your life. We've had you take an inventory of your spiritual response to Jesus an inventory of who God is in your heart, an inventory of how you love yourself and or worship yourself. And now I'm gonna ask you one more thing. Take inventory of your community. And then doing so, take inventory of yourself. Are you the kind of life changer that you wanna see in your community? Or have we all together become consumers? It's been a, a true honor to, get to share the word of God with you. It's been amazing to hear your response, to have these conversations. And I, can t I, I encourage you and I implore you to continue. There is something unique and special about Hume Lake, about the distractionless vacuum. And inside that vacuum comes great conversations and great relationships. And you're going to go back home to a group of people who weren't up here. And the culture and the change and the power of conviction and transformation from Jesus needs to be carried home and to become part of your culture, not just part of your weekend program you do every once in a while. And if you will commit to doing that, you will find yourself smack dab in the middle of a revival community that can make a great change for God's kingdom. You'll become dangerous people. And that's my hope and prayer for you. Let's pray. Jesus, for your unyielding covenant to us as Romans puts it while we were still sinners you died for us and we think back to the garden when Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against you if you were not a God of covenant and you were God simply of contract you would have said well sorry you blew it but instead you redeemed us all you sent your only son because you made a covenant with us you made a covenant with Abraham you made a covenant with David you made a covenant with Moses and through those things we have found in you the deepest love of a father. Would we become, would we model that? Would we emulate those things in our very lives? Would we take inventory of our friendships, inventory of our communities, and ask ourselves the question, if my best buddy fell away from you, would I have the nerve, would I have the strength, would I have the conviction to bring them back to you? And likewise, if I fell away, am I confident that anyone in my community truly loves me like they ought to to bring me back. These are great things to prompt good conversations, but God, would you help us have hard conversations with our good friends? To you, let me pray. Amen.